So for the first passage, we're going to read from Jonah 1, 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee the, to Tarshish, Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And now I'll read from Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from the old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Sarah, Sarah's from New York, and she says water in a very particular way. The, the waters. Every now and then the New York just escapes from her. It's not making fun. It's just acknowledging beauty of culture. Uh, now that I've ruined that sanctified moment of the reading of God's word, let me pray again, and then we can re, refocus. Heavenly Father, thank you for, for your holy word, your authoritative word that that does bring joy to our hearts. And so we thank you for the laughter that comes from it. But we also uh, want to focus on the seriousness of, of what the scriptures did say to us this morning from Jonah and from the Psalms. So Lord, would you direct our gaze now to you that we might learn uh, from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Um, there's, there's something in, in the news called the, uh, that was brought up this week called the Doomsday Clock. The Doomsday Clock. Maybe you've heard of this. Um, but this week, the Doomsday Clock moved to 90 seconds towards midnight, which, is, which marks how close our planet is to complete annihilation because of man-made actions. So to give you a background, if you're not familiar with the Doomsday Clock, it began as an idea in 1947 as a way to warn humanity of the dangers of nuclear war. And so this group of people, uh, I mean, really quali like qualified people, scientists and theorists, put together this way of showing how close humanity is to just completely self-destructing because of their own actions. And so, um, let me just give you a couple of reference points here. The farthest away the clock hands have ever been was right at the end of the Cold War, 
when it was 17 minutes from midnight. And so that's, that's the furthest away it's ever been. So if you're thinking about a clock, midnight is doomsday. The farthest away the hands have ever been since 1947 is at the end of the Cold War, it was 11.43, which they say means there's still time to self-correct. During the COVID pandemic um, in 2020, that was the last time the hands were moved and they moved to 100 seconds from midnight and they did not move again until last week. And that's when they went to 90 seconds to midnight. So 11, 58, and 30 seconds. Their reasoning for moving it last week was because of the increased, um, the increased division because of Ukraine and Russia and the uncertainty around that crisis. I bring this up now um, after our light moment about how to pronounce water. I bring up this point now as a transition point for us today into the text in Jonah that we're going through about storms. You heard Sarah read earlier from Jonah chapter one and she finished in verse four, which is what we're gonna focus on this morning, this one verse, verse four, which shows the results of Jonah's disobedience and what follows is a great storm that comes upon Jonah. And what I want us to connect with is Through the lens of Jonah, I want us to find our own connection to the storms of life that come our way. So storms this morning are a grand metaphor for us of any kind of trial, any kind of difficulty, any kind of pain, any kind of turmoil that we face in life. And that could be self-inflicted because of our own sin or disobedience like Jonah Or it could be, as I prayed earlier, as a result of just living in a sinful world of the results of other people's sins and brokenness and disobedience. And as we do so, we're going to focus on the character of God in the midst of it. Because verse 4, the only character in verse 4 of Jonah chapter 1 is the Lord himself. So we're in the book of Jonah. In the next several weeks, we're going to focus on Jonah quite a bit. We're going to focus on the sailors that are on the boat with him. We're even going to focus on a great fish in a few weeks. But not today. Today, it's just the Lord because he's the central and only character in verse 4. And what does God do in verse 4? What we know about God already from Jonah is that when God sees evil, he plans to wipe it out. He does not allow evil to simply sit at bay and flourish on its own and wreak havoc. When God sees evil, he calls out against it and sends his people to go and to do something about it. Or if they don't do something about it, he intervenes himself into the story like he does today. And so there's a couple of great buts in Jonah chapter one. The first one is verse three. God calls out and tells Jonah to go because of the great evil in Nineveh. And in verse 3, as Mike preached on last week, but Jonah, what did he do? He went the other way. God says, go to Nineveh, but Jonah, he got on a boat and went to Tarshish, the opposite direction. That's the first but. Today, we get to look at the second but. How does God respond to the but Jonah went? 
In verse 4, we see, but the Lord. Those first three words are so comforting for so many reasons. But the most important reason is, is they show us that God intervenes into history. It shows us that he does not allow evil or disobedience to the call to go and eradicate evil. He doesn't allow that to finish the story. God intervenes himself into the story of humanity. He intervenes himself towards us. He shows himself as the author of the storm that is coming to the sea that is in between Joppa and Tarshish, where Jonah is attempting to flee the presence of God. God intervenes and says, Jonah, you're going the wrong way, and I'm not going to let you go the wrong way any further. I'm going to intervene myself. But why is it a storm, you say? Why couldn't he just do it a little bit more gently? Why does he choose a storm? Why does he allow us to go through storms in life? As I said just a second ago, storms today are a metaphor. Storms are one of God's ways of bringing about personal repentance in our life. But storms are also a unique way that God alerts us to the mystery of his good purposes in our life as well. So they lead us to repentance, but they also just simply alert us to the presence of God in life. And storms have a unique way of doing that because they're big, they're loud, they're scary, they get our attention. And the way we're going to look at this this morning is through, through two lenses. In the storm, God shows us both his holiness and his love. And so the title of the, of the sermon this morning is The Storm of God's Holy Love, because that's how God encounters us in the storms of life. That's how he encounters Jonah. And I'm using this idea of holy love. It's admittedly stolen from a book that I read recently by a guy named David Wells, who is a, a, he was a former professor at Gordon-Conwell, who wrote a book called God in the Whirlwind, which is kind of like God in the Storm for us. And in that book, he, he spends a whole book talking about the holy love of God. And I want to give you just kind of a taste of that this morning as well. The holy love of God. In the storms of life, this is how God comes to us, in holy love. So first, let's look at the holiness of God. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. What does it mean that God is holy? Holiness is a way for us to understand that God is perfect, that God is pure in all of his ways, that God cannot be around evil. He does not allow evil to be in his presence. He has a natural repulsion to evil, meaning that when evil comes up before him, like it does in Jonah, he immediately has a plan to eradicate it because to have evil in his presence would violate his holiness or his perfection. Therefore, God cannot accept sin or disobedience or anything that will allow evil to continue. So when Jonah says, no, God, I'm going to go to Tarshish, God can't simply say, okay, you go to Tarshish. God has to, because he's a holy God, he has to intervene. And that 
that is a good thing for us that we're going to discover. For God to be holy means that he is, he is different than us. He is, he is other than us. He must, in his character, be pursuing his own holiness and purity and protection of his goodness. So when a storm comes, it is really, in one sense, God radically protecting his holiness. He's, he's saying no to the, to the evil that is causing the storm to even be a possibility. It's God's no that comes out of his holiness. God will not allow disobedience or sin or evil to, to come over him. So what God does in this story is he, hur- and you see the word here, he hurls a great wind. The word hurls here is a, um, it's used in other parts in the scriptures of like throwing a, a spear. So like the story of David and, and Saul, you may remember the story of um, Saul chasing after David and he throws a spear. It's the same word there, he hurls it. God hurls a great wind on the sea. He throws a wind onto the sea as a way of intervening into the story here. And the wind here is the same word for, for breath or even for spirit. God, God throws his spirit or his breath onto, onto the sea. It's almost like God is, is throwing his life onto the sea as a way of intervening into the story here. He's throwing himself. So it's not so much a destructive storm here as much as it is a, I'm throwing my life into the middle of this story so as to intervene, as to get your attention, Jonah. You're on the sea thinking literally it's smooth sailing and I'm gonna intervene and stop this disobedience from going any further because the more you try to run away and be disobedient and go the other way, the more I'm going to show you that if you continue down that path, it's only going to get worse for you, Jonah. It's only going to increase your evil, only going to increase your floundering as opposed to flourishing, as opposed to finding life. So God is showing his great power that he has in protecting his holiness here. And God, even in sending the wind, is showing us his life-giving power. You know, God wants us he wants us to rest in his, in his presence by obedience. You know, there's a Psalm, Psalm 16 that says, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what happens when you run towards God's presence and obedience. And so obviously when you run away from it, the other way, there is the opposite of fullness of joy. There is the opposite of eternal pleasure. There is only pain. And so the wind that God sends is clearly for Jonah because he ran away and fled. And so because of that, there's personal consequences that will come on Jonah himself. Um, I I just want to say here, too, that the world that Jonah was living in and the the world that you and I are living in only helps us run away from God. The wind usually blows the other direction for us in the sense of culture and society. We're not helped by the world we live in. We need the intervention of God. There's a, there's a, a well-known book called, which I admittedly have not read. I'm going to give this caveat, but I'm going to read a, a portion from it. But this book is um, a well-known book called Fahrenheit 451. 
Maybe some of you have read it. But there's an example in the book by the author Ray Bradbury. He's talking about front porches, which um, he's talking about how front porches have gone out of fashion when you're building a house. Most people now build a back porch as opposed to a front porch. But if you're in a city like Salem, you still see remnants of houses that were built with a front porch from an era where that was a common thing. And he talks about how, you know, one person says that front porches went out of style because uh, architects just didn't think they were, they were pleasing to the eye to houses. But he says, rather, he's like, actually, it's not that. It's not that architects didn't think they were appealing to the eye. Actually, what happened was people didn't, they, they didn't want people sitting around doing nothing, rocking in a chair, talking, doing all these kinds of social things. People had too much time to talk. They had too much time to think. So they ran off with the porches and the gardens too. There's not many gardens anymore to sit around in. And look at the furniture, he says. No more rocking chairs. They're too comfortable. Get people up and running around is what the book says. Which doesn't that kind of ring true? We live in a frenetic run around world where we don't really have front porches or gardens or rocking chairs nearly as prevalent because what's the good use of just sitting around and talking and being with one another and spiritually speaking i think that resonates as well god wants us to sit in his presence to listen to his call for us to turn to him and be transformed to be to be given that life of a front porch with him And yet our world says, get rid of the front porch. Get out and do stuff. Run around. Don't think as much. Don't sit and reflect as much. Flee and find your life on your own. And that's what Jonah was doing. So God sends the wind. And the wind, when it hits the sea, causes a mighty tempest or a storm. And so the storm comes as a result of the wind. The wind was for Jonah. The storm comes as a result of it, and it affects everyone around Jonah now. His sin, his disobedience, his brokenness, but the tempest or the storm now affects everyone on that ship, which we're going to learn about next week and the week after. The sailors, the crew, everyone else on that ship now is getting the results of Jonah's disobedience. This is the sobering reality of what happens when sin comes into the world. It's it's not just you that feels the results. It's all of us around you. So when a storm or trial or trouble comes into your life, sometimes it's because of you, because of your disobedience. But sometimes it's because of those around you. And that's when the storm feels really unfair, right? It's when we're introspective enough to notice, okay, I, I caused this storm. I need to personally repent. I need to ask for forgiveness. I can, I can help calm this storm. Then you, at least you have some ownership of it. And God is going to call Jonah to do that by beginning this storm. But so much of our life experience is when we realize that it actually was not my sin that caused this, but I'm just feeling the, the results of it. How do, I, how do I acknowledge to God that that's really unfair? 
This is the reality of our life, though, when you live in a broken world. There's some things we cannot control, just like the sailors couldn't control the storm that was coming. In verses 5 and following, like we'll see in future weeks, uh, we'll see how the sailors and the crew respond as a result of Jonah's sins, what they do, what Jonah does. And you're going to be, I think, pleasantly surprised at the results of it because the sailors actually find something that they weren't even looking for themselves, but God actually gives to them as a result of the storm. But what we do see is that God shows his power, shows his holiness to everyone involved. And we each get the the ability to respond to that storm how we do. Jonah gets a way to respond and the sailors get a way to respond. But I'll save that for next week when Alan preaches. So for this first point, when a storm comes into your life, how will you respond? Will you see it as a random, unfortunate event? Or will you see it as an intentional intervening of God's holiness into your life? As a way for him to get your attention, to turn you around to repentance, to acknowledge his authority, to see, wow, God is, God is powerful here. That leads us into the, the last point. God is holy, but in the storm, God also shows us his great love for us. God sent the wind that caused the storm on the sea. And don't miss this detail. So that the ship threatened to break up. The storm was so powerful that the ship threatened to break up. Now, focus your attention on one word in that sentence. Threatened. The ship threatened to break up. This is a crucial detail. The word threatened in the Hebrew can mean reckoned to break up or was meant to break up or was supposed to break up or was counted to break up. It's the same word that's used when Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Way back in Genesis 15, it says Abraham believed God and it was, it was credited to him as righteousness. It's the same word here. The storm comes on the ocean and it was credited or supposed to break the ship up. Now, what's the purpose of this? You're saying, Stephen, what's the importance of what you're trying to pull out here? The point is, is that the ship was supposed to break. Everything about this story, everything about this storm would say the ship was supposed to get wrecked by this storm. That's how powerful it was. That's how big the waves were. That's how mighty of a force this was. It was reckoned to break up. It was meant to break up. That's what God's holiness does when it breaks in with direct contact to sin and disobedience. It accomplishes the fullness of force of its purpose. It gives us what we deserve. God's holiness encounters us and breaks us. And yet here, the ship does not break. It threatened to break, but it did not break apart. God kept the ship intact and the people on it alive. And again, we're going to see full reasons in future weeks why. But the point for this morning is when everything else would rationally lead us to believe that this storm will overtake us and will kill us, God says no. 
God's love and his holiness are so intertwined that his love does not allow the ship to break. And the point for you and I in this is that when the storms of our life come in and threaten to break us up, we can rest assured in knowing that God's love and his grace will not allow us to be fully destroyed by the storm. That his love gives us life. The heart of the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that God's holiness and his love go hand in hand. He intervenes into our life with power, but he also intervenes into our lives with love so as to give us an opportunity to be saved and to find a way off of the threatening boat. He works for our good. Normal storms would seem to break us or destroy us, but God's holy love storm is meant to turn us to him in repentance. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, For God's anger lasts only but a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. God's love and mercy saves us. Tony Evans, a pastor, says, when you hit rock bottom, it's a phrase we use, like, I'm hit rock bottom. He says, when you hit rock bottom, that's actually okay, because Jesus is the rock at the bottom. It's a comforting thought. Next time you use that phrase, remember that the rock that you're hitting on the bottom is actually Jesus himself, the rock of our salvation. God loves you deeper than you can imagine. He would do anything to show his love for you, even throw a mighty storm onto the ocean to get your full attention. But just know that God is rich with love. And as Ray Ortland says, he's rich with love and he's a big spender. He's going to lavishly spend his love on you, whatever it takes. And so I think that the front of the bulletin has something similar. I think it's Charles Spurgeon that says um, something to the effect of, I don't know, I don't even have it in front of me. One of you shouted out for us. What, what does Charles Spurgeon say on the front about the storms? He says, when I see the storms, what? I thank God for every storm that has wrecked me upon the rock of Jesus. So when Jonah hits the rock here, hits the storm, it's really a great evidence of God's pursuing, intervening love in his life. God is is showing his great love to him, turning him to repentance, turning him to humility, asking him to grow in maturity, and ultimately giving him joy. Now, here's the thing about Jonah, because we're going to spend some good time with Jonah the next eight or nine weeks. We're not going to see Jonah's full story completed here. We're not going to see Jonah get to this humble, mature, joyous state. He's going to fight God the whole way during this book. And that's kind of our story too, right? We kind of fight God as we, as we receive his grace, we fight him along the way. Even when it comes to silly things later in the book, like a plant, God still pursues us in love. Um, Let me kind of close you with this this image. I read this this week. It said that the average three-year-old laughs 40 times every day. The average three-year-old laughs 40 times a day. The average 40-year-old laughs three times a day. 
Jesus says, have childlike faith. And so as we grow in maturity, grow in age, may we actually grow more and more like the innocence of children, so that we're that humble, that dependent, that, that joy-filled, that we can have the smile when the storm comes, recognizing that this is actually God's holiness and love poured out for us. So this story points us to the hope we can find in the greater Jonah, the one who said yes to God instead of no to God. We see the greater Jonah as Jesus, the one who, in, in, who faced both the literal storm when he calms the, the stormy waves on the Sea of Galilee and also who overcame the greatest storm on the cross, the spiritual metaphorical storm that saved us from our sins. Psalm 93, the Lord reigns in majesty. Though the seas have lifted up their voice as Psalm 93 finishes, mightier still is the Lord on high. His statutes stand firm. Holiness adorns his house for endless days. So let me close us in prayer and then we're gonna sing about the goodness of God one more time. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for, for the rock of Jesus. We thank you that even the storms of life when viewed through the perspective of, of Christ and his intervention on our behalf, most notably at the cross, we can see them actually as, as joy-giving interventions in our life that actually push us to recognize your, your goodness, your holiness, your love. And so, Father, I pray that you would give each of us in the room the ability to see that when the next storm comes our way, that we would see it as your intervention in our life, that we would rejoice knowing that you will keep us secure. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.